We turn to the prophecy of Ezekiel and to chapter 37. Understand that Ezekiel was one who prophesied in Babylon, that is, in the vicinity of Babylon, by the river Kibar, to an early band of exiles, first of all. There were more than one band of exiles taken into the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah, of course, was a prophet, Ezekiel's older contemporary, who prophesied to Judah and Jerusalem prior to the, Babel prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, and then through the destruction of Jerusalem. And then, of course, the large band of the exiles were sent to Babylon in the hundreds of thousands. But Ezekiel himself went with an earlier band about 11 years prior, 11 years prior to what we call the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem. If you go to the opening verses of the prophecy, you read something about 30 years. Well, that was how old he was when he was called to be a prophet. And he had been in Babylon for five years with an early band of hostages, princes and sons of priests and so on, such as Daniel and his three friends who were hostages and leveraged for Nebuchadnezzar on the good behavior of the Jews back in Jerusalem. And if you do not behave as I want you to behave, I may slay all of these hostages sons of priests and, uh, priests and kings, princes I have, have taken. Well, this occurs, this prophecy occurs after the destruction of Jerusalem, as you will find we get into the course of the, of the sermon. And it's a word of encouragement pointing to the exiles who were almost in despair, of course, to God's faithfulness, including Ezekiel himself, about a year after the destruction of Jerusalem. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and shall bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that word, Lord, Jehovah. I am a God of power, promise, and faithfulness, as I declared. So I prophesied as I commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. 
Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Now, go down to verse 21. Verses we're skipping has to do with bringing two tribes together, Joseph, Ephraim, northern Israel, and Judah. So in the time, they will be made one nation again, that promise. Now to verse 21. Say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they have be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. One king shall be king to them all, they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. And now pay heed to this, neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. And that I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And here's that reference to David. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they, shall, they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. They shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein thy, your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Thus far the reading of the prophetic word and our text runs from verses 1 through 14 of chapter 37. We are in the section of Ezekiel, which he's called to give encouragement to a people who are at the point of despair. Some are there who have only heard of the destruction of Jerusalem, but many to whom Ezekiel was speaking, had seen the destruction of Jerusalem with their own eyes. and only had seen the destruction of the city, but of the temple, and then, of course, the removal of the Ark of the Covenant, and added to that death. Death. Young men, mothers, little ones, dashing little ones against the stones because they would not have these mothers and their little ones hinder the march of the exiles to Babylon. They came with a sense of a horror, and they added to that horror was they knew that it was the judgment of God upon the nation. And if you read through Ezekiel and the sins the nation committed with its princes and false priests, 
then there was a nation that deserved, was worthy of this wrath. And now, what hope is there? Driven from the promised land, and the temple gone, and the presence of the Lord, and we under the hand of his wrath. To such a people, Ezekiel must bring the word. And he must bring a word now to encourage. And the encouragement, of course, is in the Lord God and in whom and who he is. It's a word that follows up with what you read in chapter 36, verses 31 and 2. Notice, then shall ye remember your evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Not because you're so worthy of it, but because of who I am. Be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. But nonetheless, for my name's sake and the promise that I made and my faithfulness, declare this, Ezekiel, unto this people who are at the point of despair. This is a word in the end, of course, that is going to magnify the name and the power and the faithfulness of Jehovah, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God, in spite of the unfaithfulness of those with whom he deals. But at the same time, let's understand, this is a passage that's going to underscore and magnify the importance, the vital importance of the preaching of the word. Prophesy, Ezekiel, prophesy. Preach. Underscores the importance, the vital importance of the preaching of the gospel, which by implication underscores the importance of attending to the preaching. Preaching what? God's faithfulness also the call to repentance that they loathe themselves because this is the cause of their judgment and the heavy hand of God. They were not a repentant people. The people of God, the people of God are we. But they would not hear the prophetic rebukes and reproofs and calls to repentance. And apart from repentance, beloved, one does not know the favor of God. You will know the favor and the approval of God and repent and confess. Anyone who thinks differently does not read this passage in context with the spectacles of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that. This is a history that underscores the hard-heartedness of the people who would not hear the call to repentance and would persist in their ungodliness, self-centeredness, though they claim to be the children of God. So the consequences. But then added to that is, of course, the importance of God's faithfulness to bring this to pass. And so a word of hope. Ezekiel's vision 
of dry bones. Is what the prophet Saul, as he was called to address these bones and the wonder that occurred by the power of this almighty, faithful Jehovah. Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones. And first of all, what he saw and, of course, what those dry bones represent. Like the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, the book of Ezekiel is filled with visions that touch upon the history of the Church of Christ. Ezekiel's in the Old Testament, reaching to the New Testament nonetheless, as we must see. You'll find many of the references, of, of visions of Ezekiel made reference to, in fact, by the book of the Revelation as visions are given to the Apostle John. It has been some time since Ezekiel has received a vision. In fact, the last vision that he received goes back to verses cha chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, which are all one, one vision. But that was over a year previous. Now there's about 25 chapters between those two visions. So he received the word of God, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and the Spirit said to me this and that, but not a vision as though seen on a screen visibly. Here he's been given again to see one of these great visions. And the vision that is set in the context really of the vision, the previous vision that goes back to chapter 8, it comes to a head in chapter 11. The vision, last vision he had speaks of in chapter 8 of the sixth year and the sixth month. That is in the sixth year of Ezekiel's prophecy when he was called to be a prophet in the vision of those great creatures with the seven wings and then six wings apiece and then wheels within wheels representing the glory of Jehovah God his holiness and the throne of God that they carried above their heads that's how he was called to be a prophet and then in chapters 8 9 and 8 9 10 and 11 he sees those same creatures again and he sees them in their holiness and he sees them in the context of the sin of the nation and especially of unfaithful office bearers. And he is to prophesy so that you read in chapter 10 that the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house, that's the house of the Lord, and stood over the cherubims, these living creatures. And then chapter 11 opens, Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up, brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house. So he's in Babylon, but by vision, he's seeing things, you see, that are taking place, as it were, in Jerusalem. And he says this, Jezaniah, and so on, the princes of the, of the people. And then in verse 2, he says in chapter 11, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in this city, and who yet say, it's not near. What's not near? The judgment is not near. I know Jeremiah keeps talking about this judgment of the Lord God and his, his anger with us and his wrath is going to fall. 
but we have nothing to worry about. Let us build houses instead. Let us put down stakes. We're meant to stay here in the promised land. He made a promise, did he not? But he can't go back on his promise. We're remaining in the promised land. The city is the cauldron. This is the pot, you see. And we are the flesh. We are the stew, as it were. We're, we're what makes this city taste good to the Lord God. Therefore, the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. You think the judgment's not going to fall? It is just about to fall. And that's why you read in the conclusion of the chapter of this vision back over a year back, they, he says, as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, says the Lord. Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above and the glory of the Lord went out from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. The cherubim, the glory of the Lord, carrying the glory of God out of the temple and leaving the city defenseless now, you see, utterly defenseless. The presence of the Lord was not there to preserve them. And he's watching now. The Lord is watching, as it were, as he will allow Nebuchadnezzar to knock down the gates and destroy the city from wall to wall and slay the inhabitants with a terrible, terrible slaughter, allowing it because it was his will to use Nebuchadnezzar as the rod of his correction and the expression of his judgment. That's where things stand. And Jerusalem, beloved, has been destroyed when you have this vision. The Lord lifted up his glory, departed. Ichabod, the glory has departed, as that wife of the son of Eli declared when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and brought forth a child and said, let him name Ichabod. The glory has departed and we are defenseless. And then you read these words in Ezekiel chapter 33, 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, so about a year after it was destroyed in the tenth month, one that had escaped out of Jerusalem came unto me saying, the city is smitten, it's destroyed. Nothing is left but a heap of rubble and smoke rising to the heavens and a slaughter of young and old behind them. And the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he sits dumb for a whole day until the Spirit comes and says, Now, Ezekiel, pick yourself up. You must bring a word to my people. And what we find here in chapter 37 is part of that word. Though that it seemed as though they were without hope, and they had reason to be without hope as looking to themselves, yet... I have a work yet I will do in a saving way. Not for your sake, but because of who I am, says the Lord. And he gives this vision to show how, as it were, he's going to do that. This vision of the dry bones. The hand of the Lord comes upon him. He's carried into the midst of the valley that's full of bones, heaps of bones. And they're not even bones that 
are simply skeletons connected to each other, if you will, but just scattered because they don't even have sinews to keep the, the, the bones together. They're scattered in piles, and he caused me to pass by them round about, walking in the midst of them, piles like snow. Piles of snow here? Piles of bones that he's walking through. Many in the open valley, lo, they were very dry, not even a sinew upon them anymore. And then the question, son of man, can these bones live? Keep in mind who these bones represent. These bones do not represent those who have been slaughtered and killed already and are turning to dry bones under the sun and the rays of the heat of the Middle East. These bones represent Israel yet living in captivity. They are as dry bones, you see, from every might say, spiritual point of view. And Ezekiel knows that. They say that these bones represent Israel that, is, that are living because when you get to verse 11 of our chapter, he, he says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel who say our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off in our part. Remember that that's the question of the spiritual element of Israel. We'll come back to this. Nonetheless, these bones represent, first of all, apostate and apostatizing Israel. And in that context, that question asks, can these bones live? And Ezekiel knows that the Lord is referring to the, those who are in exile and who yet live. And the question is, can they live? That is, can this Israel live unto me? Can they live as citizens of the kingdom? Can these be a people that I can use to establish the kingdom and to bring forth the seed of the covenant? Is this a people who could return to the land and have victories and be a force, spiritual force to be reckoned with as a living force. Thou knowest, Lord, surely thou knowest it is self-evident. No more is that possible with this residue of people that has been brought to Babylon than it would be possible for these dry bones to live and to bring victory and to serve the living God. That, understand, is what's behind that statement of the question and then the statement of Ezekiel. So first of all, apostate and apostatizing Israel, the carnal element of the nation itself, which was large and in a majority. But understand, this vision also has representation of fallen mankind as fallen mankind, not simply Israel, the apostate and apostatizing, but really what you find over the whole of the earth in Ezekiel's time and in our own time when it comes to the unbelieving sinner as dry, dry bones. Because that's how fallen man is left to himself and in himself. It's what you find described by the apostle in Ephesians chapter 2. 
which begins with the word you who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past he walked according to the course of the world. No, dead in trespasses and sins. Dead, but they're walking. They're living, but they're dead while they live. In trespasses and sins. You understand, to be dead in trespasses and sins is not merely this, that you're under the sentence of death. And someday, if you don't believe, you're going to die unto judgment more than simply being under the sentence of death. And it's even more than not being able to save oneself with anything that one does because one is dead and so one cannot by his, his works and so on save oneself. It's more than that. This is a death that has to do with a corruption that is within and a corruption that, as it were, stinks in the nostrils of God as a corpse that is rotting in its sin. But the vision goes even beyond that because of it speaks of dry bones so that with respect to natural fallen man, not only that there is a sin in him and sins with, with which there is a corruption that stinks in the nostrils of holy God, but neither can a man even desire to be saved, contrary to the Arminians, of course, who would say, well, they can't save themselves. But if you bring the gospel to them and tell them that God loves them and he loves all men, that they have a will that is free enough that they can make the right choice of themselves. So plead, plead with them and try to persuade them to see the lights and hopefully you by your word can prevail upon them and bring them to their senses and talk about God's love for all and so on. No, beloved, not to dry bones. Not, natural man does not desire salvation properly defined. You may bring the word to natural man and he wants to go to heaven, maybe even join a church because I don't want in the end of my life to go to hell. And when I die, I'd like to have a clergyman speak some good words over my corpse and what a good man I was and I made the right choice and I'm still heaven bound. That's not, sal that's not salvation. They may desire that kind of salvation, but not salvation properly defined. What is, prop what is salvation properly defined? Salvation, beloved, is deliverance from the guilt of sin. But it's not just the guilt of sin. Salvation is deliverance from the power of sin and the rule of sin so that a man desires to seek God and to live unto God and to submit to the word of God and to forsake his sin and to be as a slave to sin put away those things that he knows are displeasing to God. And that no man, no natural man desires. Not salvation in that sense. You mean salvation means I must forsake my pleasures, my sinful pleasures. I must cast myself upon the mercy of Jehovah God. I must deny myself and follow after this, this Christ at a, at a cost as I bear a cross. I have to repent in the true sense of the word, not simply keep me from the consequences of my sin. I'm sorry about that. Save me from the consequences of my sin, but leave my sins behind, my darling sins. I'm not interested in that. Bring me another gospel that gives me hope as I continue in my perverse ways. That's natural man. There's not even the desire for salvation properly defined. 
for that to be there, beloved, there must be the work of the Holy Spirit and the breath of God as our passage speaks of it. But not only does this valley of the dry bones represent apostate Israel and natural man unworked in by grace and the Holy Spirit, but even the spiritual residue of Israel that was left from a certain point of view. Because there was a remnant left, you understand that. There was the remnant of election, and they were a people who, though had a weakness of faith and negligent in many ways of godliness, yet were believers, and the remnant that was left, represented even by Daniel and his three friends, and Ezekiel and others in the nation. They too, beloved, from a certain point of view, are as dry bones. How? I say that because verse 11 says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. None are excluded, even the spiritual remnant. Behold, they say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we are cut off. That's the words not of the carnal, that's the words of the spiritual. Dry bones how? In bringing forth spiritual seed, beloved. Believers cannot bring forth spiritual seed of themselves. You may marry a believer. And the two of you, of us together, cannot bring forth spiritual seed. We are as dry bones when it comes to bringing forth spiritual seed. We may bring forth children, but they are conceived dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. Without any interest in spiritual matters. And that's how they would remain. Except the God of the covenant, according to his electing word, at some point in their development. Maybe in the womb. Maybe just shortly after birth. Maybe when they're adults determines to enter into them and change their heart and breathe upon them spiritual life. From that point of view, beloved, we are dry bones. And you understand that was the fear of the spiritual. If this judgment of God upon Jerusalem and the nation and driving us out of the land means we cannot even bring forth spiritual seed and he will not work in us anymore as spiritual seed, and he is simply cutting us off in the covenant line, then we are as dry bones and we have no hope because we know we cannot bring forth the spiritual seed that's supposed to reach into the Messiah. And if he will not bring forth the spiritual seed from us reaching to the Messiah, we're done. We're dry bones. That's how we are, beloved. Apart from the covenant promise of God, according to his electing word, to turn those that we conceive dead and trespasses and sins into living members again, and they become as lambs, if you will, because unto, until the Spirit enters them and regenerates them and has regenerated us, perhaps many of us in the womb. We reflected more the serpent seed than lamb seed. We are lambs according to election, 
not living that way, however, until the Spirit grieves and transforms a heart and one becomes as a child of God, not now merely according to election, but according to the operations of the Holy Spirit and the newness of life. But in, as I have said, that's what this spiritual remnant feared, that they were completely cut off and they would not even be, the wrath of God meant he was not o even going to bring forth spiritual seed from them. They were at the point of despair. In fact, in many ways, even Ezekiel himself was that way. Go back to chapter 11 of Ezekiel. He sees a judgment passed upon the son of a certain priest, and he falls down, and he cries with a loud voice, O Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Are you cutting us off completely? Are we going to be as Lot? Not as the children of Abraham, but as Lot. Plucked as a brand out of the burning, perhaps, but where's the seed? Where's the future? Where's the covenant church to come from? Is that what this judgment means, Lord God? Then we are without hope. It's in that context, beloved, that comes this vision of the dry bones, a valley full of bones, and he views them all. What do you think, son of man? Can these bones live? O oh Lord, thou knowest, from every human point of view, we're dead, we're finished, it's impossible. We despair. And then, beloved, comes the vision and the word, son of man, prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. As though the, the prophet himself self, self says, Lord, hearing of the, of the judgment of, upon Israel and being driven out of the, of the land and seeing the spiritual inabilities of thy people, whom I call you of the carnal, not only, but even the inability of the spiritual to bring forth spiritual seed. What hope is there? Why go on? Because, as we read in verse 7, thus saith the Lord God unto thee, behold, I will cause breath to enter upon them and you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and bring up flesh upon you. Tell my people, I'm going to do this great work. Not for your sake, not because of you, because of your worth and so on, but because of who I am and my promises and my unexplained, as it were, love for you. And I will put breath in you and ye shall live and you shall know that I am Jehovah God, the God of my word. So I'm going to do this because of who I am, but beloved, want to point this out, and this is important for the whole of this passage. Before the Lord God says verse 5, he states verse 4. Before he states what I'm going to do because of who I am, he says to the prophet, prophesy unto these bones. 
preach, in other words, not just foretell the future, but preach. That's what he's saying. Prophesy, preach to these bones. And what the text is pointing out is that the Lord will do a work of salvation, but not apart from the preaching of the gospel. And the word brought, you're going to witness something, Ezekiel, that's marvelous beyond your expectation. But not only are you going to witness it, we are, you are going to be involved as a preacher of the word. Notice, beloved, that word again. Again, he said unto me, prophesy. Because, of course, for some seven, eight years, he's been prophesying. He's been preaching. And without much fruit, they continued right in their way. Jeremiah was preaching 50 years, you know, talking about the repentance of sin, the leaving of their ways, and the coming judgment. And did it change anybody? Well, it may have changed a few, but it didn't change the nation as a whole. And judgment fell anyway. So what fruit did it bear? Wasting our breath. Why preach? They continue right in their unbelieving way, and the judgment is going to fall anyway. Again, he said to me, prophesy unto these dry bones. In other words, Ezekiel, you do what you're called to do. And when my own timing comes, I will take care of what only I can do. You prophesy. When I decide to honor the word, spirituality will take place. So prophesy, son of man. And I will lay sinews upon this people and flesh and so on, and they shall live and know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And what did he prophesy, do you suppose? Well, he prophesied concerning, of course, the holiness of God, that God who was high and lifted up, represented by those seraphim and the radiating with a holy light and the throne above the seraphim. And he called them to the worship of Jehovah God, and to the worship of God alone, and to put your trust in him and not in these miserable idols you bow down to and pay homage to as well. Turn to me. But also, beloved, the call to repentance. A word, you see, that they had refused to hear. Go back to chapter 33, verse 31. This is what we read in Verse 33 and 31. First, we read in verse 30, 33, 30. Son of man, the children of thy people are still talking against thee by the walls. They're, they're discussing what you brought to them and the call to repentance and so on. In the doors of the houses, and they speak one to another, and every one his brother, come, I pray you, they say, let's hear the word that cometh forth from the Lord through Ezekiel. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, as if they're my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. Oh, what a wonderful word. But their heart goeth after their covetousness, after their lusts. They will listen to preaching. They will hear it, I should say, but they won't hearken to it. Nice sermon, Dominie. And then you go your way, and you continue right in their own perverseness and sin. That's the idea, you see. They hear it, but they don't do it. They don't respond properly. Their hearts are hard. Turn ye, turn ye, turn ye, and they will not turn. As 
No man will, neither will we either, until something else happens in addition to the word. The Holy Spirit comes, and like with Saul of Tarsus, stabs the heart and works what he has willed to work. So, Ezekiel, continue to bring the word that you have been bringing and in some ways has frustrated you because you haven't seen the fruits that you desire. But the time comes when I will use that word according to my will, in my time, according to my purpose. And then it will be, as you read in verse 31 of chapter 36, then you will remember your evil ways and your doings that are not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. We read that in the context of 37 as well. There comes a time when they shall defile themselves no more with their idols nor their transgressions, but I will save them in their dwellings. And then it speaks of being delivered from their detestable things, a loathing of themselves. That's repentance, beloved. Repentance is more than simply saying, I'm a great sinner. Oh, I'm a great sinner. I think I'm a greater sinner than you are. I can out-confess you with respect to sins once every day and twice on the Lord's day. That's how great a sinner I am. That's not yet repentance. Just confessing what a great sinner one is. There is confession, that's for sure. But it's more than that, isn't it? Repentance is also what Ezekiel says in another passage in 18 and 33 of of the chapters, turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways and leave them behind. Loathe yourselves. That is, loathe that which you once took pleasure in. You see, that's repentance. Once I took pleasure in that defilement and it was as though it smelled wonderful to me. Now I see how I was living and doing and now it has a stink. I loathe it and I even loathe the fact that I took pleasure in that. That's repentance, a sorrow, you see, of that sort. I'm reminded of that prisoner that I spoke of this morning as he looked back on his former life and he loathed and he does loathe that way what possessed me. Well, I will tell you who did not possess me, the Holy Spirit, and I did not know repentance, but I have been taken hold of by the power of the Spirit and the word was brought and I loathed that way and how I lived back then. The sins of youth remember not, and my trespasses record. Bring that word, Ezekiel, and I will do my work. And so he preaches, and I prophesied as I was commanded, and there was a noise and a shaking, and the bones came to their bone to his bone, and the sinews upon the flesh, and the skin covered them above. There's this movement in the valley, and it's as though all the parts of the bones, you know, they have that song, and the ankle bone finds the shin bone, and the shin bone finds the thigh bone, and the pelvis, and all the way until you have a whole skeleton laying there. And then before Ezekiel's wondering eyes, it's as though creation begins to take place, and the sinews, and the muscles, and the, and the flesh, and the skin appear over these bones. There's something transforming taking place under the preaching of the word, as the Spirit honors that word. It hath pleased God, beloved, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's 1 Corinthians, isn't it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It has saved God by the foolishness of preaching. As men call it foolishness. Why preach? 
What can the words of a man do in the way of salvation? A prophet himself may come to that conclusion. I preach, and, and what has really occurred? Missionary become discouraged. Doesn't seem to be any positive response. They remain in their idolatry and simply dismissing the word. Foolishness. What do you mean, believe in the man who died on a cross? That's defeat. That's not victory. Give me the, the gospel of some kind of a man who had a victory, not death on a cross. How can the death of a man on a cross save us? And then you explain the gospel, of course. You understand who that man was who died on the cross? The Son of God and why that had atoning value sent by the true God himself. Unless you believe in his name, you shall perish because it was the way to victory. He hath arisen from the dead on the third day with healing in his wings. Believe and repent or perish. The foolishness of preaching as men count it, but God says in mine own time, I will use it as a power, and so he does. Now what's striking in our passage is that these bones come together and they're covered, but as we read in verse 8, but there was no breath in them. And that gives man a pause. So the preaching has an effect upon them, and yet they're not spiritually alive. And why does the passage put it that way? Well, from a certain point of view, I suppose you could say, in some ways, this is true to the parable of the sower of the seed. Because the sower went forth and he threw the seed, which was the word, and there were plants that sprang up for a time and gave the appearance of life, but they bore no fruit because they had no deepness of root. They weren't really in Christ Jesus by faith. They simply heard the word and it appealed to their emotions, and there was a response, but it was not in the way of true faith and repentance, just an appearance. And the word can accomplish that, and in many does accomplish that. But if you simply have the preaching of the word, that's all it ever will accomplish in the end, is an emotional response and a temporary, I will follow after Christianity, but now it costs me too much, and I'm not going to give up my darling pleasures, and they fall back again into sin but there was no breath in them. The preaching of the word, beloved, apart from the power of God, isn't going to save, which is different than saying God will not use it in the interest of salvation in whomsoever he will. There was no breath in them. Then he said, prophesy to the wind, son of man, to the wind that that breath, so that it breathes and the breeze upon them. I prophesy, he commanded, and the breath came and they lived and stood. In other words, underscoring the absolute essential value of the irresistible power of the Holy Spirit who bloweth whether he listeth, as Christ said to Nicodemus. You, cannot, you must be born again. That's the Spirit. That doesn't discount the Word, but the Word apart from the Spirit will not bring life. But the Spirit is pleased nonetheless to use the Word in the interest of life and bringing salvation in a conscious awareness of the mind and of the confession of the faith. And so you have the glorifying of the power of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, which is essential. But again, beloved, in the context of the preaching of the gospel and salvation work where the word is preached, and then God in his own will determines to whose heart he will apply it, 
and breathe upon him. And Paul went out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of rebellion into service, out of pride into humility, out of unbelief into faith, and a faith that shows itself, as in the Apostle Paul, following after Christ and confessing his name. So that's the promise. I have enough time yet. That's the promise. When, Lord, when? That becomes the question. When, Lord, when? When will the church be a force to be reckoned with? Because that's the promise here. He prophesied, the breath came upon them, they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. Notice that word. It doesn't simply tell us that when God decides to save his own, he will save a great multitude, though he does 10,000 times 10,000 over the course of the history of the world and many tens of thousands in the New Testament age, but that they will be a force to be reckoned with as an army, fierce, you see, church militant, and go from victory unto victory, if you will. Win, Lord, win. Well, that's not fulfilled just simply when the exiles went back to the promised land, though they were brought back to the promised land and in a sense showed that God was going to fulfill his word and was true to his word. But that's not, not the fulfillment because those exiles returned to the promised land from Zerubbabel on were never a spiritual force to be reckoned with. The remainder of the dominion of Babylon, of course, was defeated and removed, but the Persians took over, and following the Persians came the Greeks, and after the Greeks came the Romans, and by the time Christ is born, the church is down to a very few, old and weak, represented by Zacharias and Elizabeth and, and Simeon and Anna and so on. There, were, there was a remnant there, but the spiritual were few and, and weak, and they were not a force to be reckoned with. And then what comes, my love? According to his covenant promise, there are those who bring forth the spiritual seed and finally even the seed of the woman Christ Jesus by the power of God. And the great David, the son of David, is born, and he's born as king to be crucified, to be sure, but as representing his people to satisfy the wrath of God and to rise as a mighty king and to turn his people into a force to be reckoned with. The church of the New Testament, beloved, a force to be reckoned with, not perhaps to the natural eye, but to faith and a certain reading of history itself. The church militant, the New Testament church, the church of the New Testament age in the preaching of the gospel, a force reckoned with, not with sword and spear or with guns and bombs and so on, military force, Simon, Peter, at the garden, put away thy sword. It's not how we're going to carry out the battles of my kingdom with sword. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. But I give you a sword, and I give you the sword of my spirit, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit to enable you to wield that sword and to apply it. And you will have victories over the forces of evil against which the world itself is powerless. You may say the world has great power. Oh, does it? Against death? Has 
the world yet con conquered death? Does the world have power over the devil? Has the world yet delivered enemy from the power of the evil one? And from the curse? And from wrath? And darkness? They are powerless before the great powers of love that mean death and everlasting death. Where is the power? Who has the power? We do. As you sit here, representing the church of Christ Jesus, the power of the word and of the spirit over against forces that the world itself cannot contend with and is defeated again and again by the thousands and the tens of thousands but not the saints, not even the last enemy death. It does not conquer us, beloved. We are more than conquerors in the end. We are more than victors through the power of the Lord Jesus as we have believed his word has been brought to us and applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, yet we don't war after the flesh. The world is simply flesh and wars after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The working of obedience, you see. Repentance as it flows from faith. But the victories of the gospel of the church of Christ as she wields the sword and supports that gospel, casting down imaginations and everything that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God mighty, pulling down the strongholds of Satan himself church is saved, and Christ has not suffered one defeat with respect to the salvation of any of his elect. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. The world may not acknowledge that, but in the end, that's history, and that's true, and his church still exists and still brings forth the truth, and the word that God brought to Ezekiel still is true. Beloved, in the end, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And in the end, if God be for us, who can be against us? And he will save. And we say this, beloved, because we live in desperately evil times. And the powers of wickedness increase and would overwhelm us, if you will, and silence us. And what hope do we have for the future Will we not be silenced and scattered and defeated? No. Go to the valley of the dry bones and see the power of the Lord God by word and spirit. And then go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. May we have confidence in the word. Take thee at thy word by faith and live unto thee and turn from that which displeases thee to the walk of obedience and be useful in the service of the kingdom till Christ is pleased to come again. In Jesus' name.
Amen.